Welcome to Interplay. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. Today I have a most special guest from Gloucester, the UK, Adrian Partington. Hello, Adrian. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us on Interplay, where we talk about not only music, but also what's what I call what is beneath the notes, to use a phrase that Otto Klemperer used. And I know that you, Adrian Frederick Partington, is someone yeah. who is very, very concerned about spirituality and what is underneath the notes. First, um, I can say that you're an English conductor, a chorus master, an organist, and a pianist, and you're virtuoso in each. I have seen you work at Evensong at the Gloucester Cathedral, where you are the director of music. Uh, it's called in some churches here the minister of music, but you are, you are called the, the director of music at the Gloucester Cathedral, which is ancient. We'll talk about that. You're joint conductor of the Three Choirs Festival. You're artistic director for Gloucester Festival Years, director of the BBC National Chorus of Wales, conductor of the Gloucester Choral Society, and you're the former conductor of the Bristol Choral Society and a leader uh, of various choral conducting courses at the Royal Welsh College of Music and Drama. Adrian, this must be a peculiar time for you. I know we've corresponded. Uh, wasn't this the first time that the Gloucester Cathedral, where you are director of music, will explain what that means, was closed since the time of of King John? Is that correct? Yes, this is absolutely true. Uh, King John closed cathedrals and abbeys for a short time because uh, the Pope at the time had excommunicated him, and this was his form of petty revenge. And so, uh, yes, this, this year... The cathedral's been closed for worship for the first time since the 13th century. Absolutely true. But Robin Hood took care of him, and when Richard the Lionhearted came back, oh, yeah. at least so does the Errol Flynn movie state that with the great score of Corngold, I might that, add. That is a wonderful film. I love that film. I love it. I love The color it. And, and the music are just marvelous. And he was a friend of my teacher, Korngold. I studied with Karl Bamberger, and they knew each other in Vienna. I heard all kinds of stories. I'm but to, sure get, to get back to you and the cathedral, I've conducted, the, as you know, the BBC uh, National Orchestra of Wales a year ago now mm. for three days in a recording sure. of, my, of my Archangel Concerto for Piano Orchestra with Stephen Beck and that fabulous orchestra and several other works, including my Vidorama, which is my own orchestration of Jean-Marie Vidor's Takata from the Symphony Number no. Five of Frogan, which, which you have played, I am sure, countless <laughs> times. A very, very many times. Yes, that's right. Uh, I know my my friends, the players, really enjoyed those sessions. You'll be pleased to hear. Oh, and, I am very happy to hear that. And the the beetle was a particular talking point. <laughs> uh, well, they were fantastic, and I hope in uh, you know remember the song when the lights go on again. All over yeah. the world. Well, what, what, some time yes. away, I fear. I fear so as well. But when I went, uh, Marjorie and I took a tour of the Cotswolds, because I'd never seen it, where you're from, and you, you lived for quite a while, I understand, yes? Well, um, my own little house is in the Y Valley, actually. It's the other side of Gloucester. Um, but uh, it's similarly beautiful and very pastoral and not very built up. So I'm glad you've seen the Cotswolds. 
outstanding. But the thing that, uh, but I said to her, we have to go see the Gloucester Cathedral because I'd read about it. And of course, I knew about its place in movies. For those who are watching this now or hearing it on um, Apple Podcast, which where this will also appear, of course, the Harry Potter films, three or four of them were filmed in the Abbey uh, sections of the Gloucester Cathedral. But the thing that struck me about the Gloucester Cathedral when we entered uh, first to tour it during the day and then coming back when we saw that we could come back for for Evensong was its great solemnity, mm. its great beauty. I've been to many cathedrals throughout the world. I always go to see the architecture. I mean, Chateau Cathedral in France is the mm. one we always talk about, you know. Wonderful. And, of course, Notre Dame, which we adore. But, I, you know, I've been to Westminster Abbey and so forth. I had not been to the Gloucester Cathedral. I really wanted to see it. And when we walked in, it is so ancient. Mm. And I read, I, re- I read that it comes from the 10th century, where it was mm. first an abbey. But yes. Speak to me about for the music, because I understand music goes way back. You have many predecessors there, don't you? Well, I certainly do. I, mean, I think Gloucester has been a center of United Kingdom music making for yeah, around a thousand years. But one thing I'd like to say, we all think we're very modern, but Gloucester was originally founded in the 16th century, as the, in the 6th century as uh, a monastery for men and women. Now, um, I think that's something to be celebrated. And one of the early leaders of the community was Abbess Kainberger. Um, so I'm very proud to say that uh, we had women in our community, uh, presumably offering music as well, from, from uh, over a thousand years ago. But the monastery itself uh, rose to prominence later, after the country had settled down, after to the uh, Norman invasion of 1066, which most people will know about, um, into a Benedictine monastery. The first time we know that actually know there was singing was in the late 15th century, but of course there was singing before that, because there are references to boy choristers being employed. Um, I think the monks may have got a little bit lazy and then brought, brought in musicians to do their singing for them. But Henry VIII, um, as I'm, I'm sure you know, King Henry VIII, uh, he abolished the monasteries in the 1530s and 1540s, but immediately established uh, a system of English services, matins in the morning, evensong in the evening, and all the worship to be conducted in English and sung by a choir, uh, which was of men and boys, now happily of girls, boys, men, and women. So we are the successors to a tradition which goes back in its present form to the 1540s, and it's something really to be proud of. It's it's extraordinary, because we have very little to compare here in the States, because we're so young. Mm-hmm. But the tie but... between you know our countries is so tight at this point, especially after the First and Second World Wars. Um, yes. And it'll get tighter again, I promise you. Well, I think it's tight now because of our shared problems. I mean, yes, sir. In, in many ways, I think um, uh, Europe is uh, a cultural extension of um, the United States uh, rather than the other way around. When your country was growing as a nation, 
you know, it imported ideas from Europe, but I think the traffic is more <laughs> in the opposite direction now. <laughs> well, I seek inspiration, I will tell you, in the British Isles. I really do. Um, we have a, a national characteristic for all our races here, which is, on the whole, quite tolerant. Um, the, the extremes of behavior that we see in other parts of the world tends not to happen here. People get angry, of course they get angry. People get passionate. But um, we're still reasonably calm as, as a nation. Um, Although we haven't handled coronavirus terribly well, I can tell you that. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Uh, we'll have a conversation offline about personal effects of coronavirus, which I can <laughs> tell you all about, but not today. I'm sure. <laughs> but I do want to speak to you about the composition of the choir. When yes. I heard, I came to a service that was in memory of Sri Lankan people who had oh, been yes. killed. And your, your conducting was really quite magical. And... It was of music of the Elizabethan period, mostly. Sure. In terrific acoustics. Yeah. In the yeah. choir section before the uh, you know main altar, I think it is, in the back there. It is just incredible. Are there multiple spaces for you to perform in the cathedral? Yes. We're blessed with um, singing galleries. In fact, um, uh, we have two. They're called tribune galleries, and service can be held up there, or we can use them for sort of uh, Venetian corrispezzati music. Um, we have a large organ loft, which you probably noticed. We have choir groups up there sometimes. If you're doing Monteverdi, you know, you can divide the choir into three or four parts. And we have a large chapel, a very late medieval chapel um, called the Lady Chapel. And in that, I don't know if you went to there were three singing galleries, three galleries built specifically to hold singers. Um, and as you say, the acoustics of the building are uniquely beautiful. Uh, and I'm told that uh, uh, Master Mason here tells me that it's because of the quality of the stone, which was, comes from the Cotswolds, as a matter of fact. It's very, very hard limestone. And he also says because the arches are round rather than pointed, they are better acoustically. So the in short, the sound is fantastic. Just and fantastic. The, the reverberation was fabulous. It was not... Do you do much recording there? We do a bit, yes. We've just, um, just recorded something which has gone into 12th place in the classical music charts. I'm proud to be able to tell Bravo. you. So, a requiem by a, a modern British composer called Ian Venables. Um, yes. But it, it was written for the building. And so he knew just how to uh, to pace it, you know. Um, so it's it's slow, moving harmonic music, but very, very beautiful, and has proved fantastically popular. Talk to me about the. Do you have a school there for music, yes, young we do. singers? And we of do. course, this is in hiatus now. But tell me about. Um... No, it's not. Well, oh, it's it not. is. Yeah. Well, it, okay. it kind of is. Kind of. Is. <laughs> All right. Describe the, in the best functioning time without disease, uh, what do you do there specifically? Well, the boys and girls uh, go to school at this. It's called the King's School because Henry VIII wasn't a very modest chap and he named the school after himself <laughs> when, when he founded it. Um, and what happens is that the, uh, 
um, just the boys at the moment. The girls rehearsed later, but uh, because of staffing, that kind of thing, uh, I see the boys every morning at uh, eight o'clock and they do an hour's rehearsal before going to school. And the girls rehearse after school for historical reasons, but that's going to change next year. Um, so with, they are very, very closely linked and always have been. And it, it's, it's, it's a luxury, it's a total luxury to have all the children coming from one school. You know, I, I, I also think about one thing. I'm a great student of Bach, obviously, as a composer. And um, I think of the situation when he was writing music in yeah. that small area surrounded by the boys who lived there, plus yeah. all his children, sure. plus in succession, two wives. And he's sitting in another room writing this stuff down for the next Sunday, yeah. these yeah. cantatas and then the larger pieces. And dealing with the screaming and the hollering and the kids running and playing and all that, it, it, to me, it's a fascinating image. It is. But, and it's yeah. one that I of often. Um, but, but you have I'm, real experience of it, Adrian. Well, I do, because I have um, <laughs> lots of children myself, as indeed do you. Not as many as Bach, uh, but I'm used to trying to be creative with um, pandemonium going on around, around about me. Um, but uh, the children know that they are doing something special. You know, they, they come into the building and they're still wide-eyed and enthusiastic as, as they were when they first came. It's, uh, it's, it's rather lovely. I just wish more people could have the opportunity. I mean, we do have lots of other choirs here so that everybody who wants to can sing. Anybody in the city can sing. Um, but the cathedral choir obviously has to be... Uh, formed through competitive audition because mm. uh, not every child has got the musicianship to be able to sing Bach or Bird, you know? No, I know quite well. My my father was a t boy tenor in a choir yeah. and my yeah. brother had a beautiful tenor voice. I did not have as good a voice. But, You're the very uh, sonorous bass voice, though. Well, now nice I do. Thing. Now I do. Yes, thank you. I'll come and sing next time. I cannot wait to come back. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> I'm curious about also as a conductor, because you're an outstanding professional conductor, you do not conduct the music, the music conducts you, which from another conductor, I can say this, I could see the way you use your hands, the way you use your body, the way you use your eyes, the air in you, the way you breathe with them. It's so important. Yes, but it's quite fine and it's very, you know, you have daily, weekly, yearly experience to the extent that many other conductors do not get, even those that, that work in the opera house and ballet. You're working all the time on all different levels. Mm. But I have a question for you about the upbringing of a great choral conductor like you. And I should say, not choral conductor, conductor, maestro. You started out as a keyboardist from mu musical parents. Is this not right? Mm. Although, I must say straight away, my, the greatest formative influence on my life was being a choir boy, singing as a child in a choir. I think that's the most important thing you can offer a child. It's simple, it's free, it's totally rewarding, and it gives you the best life experience. Singing in a choir is just the best thing you can do. And, and that was in, in Worcester Cathedral? In Worcester, yes. It's about... 30 miles from here. It's not as nice as Gloucester. 
I've been to Worcester, <laughs> but I've been in Worcester, Mass, Massachusetts, ah, where, yes, I'd be I, where we've recorded music with the Boston Symphony without <laughs> a different Worcester, but they pronounce it Worcester in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, the Three Choirs Festival, of which you are mm. co-director, uh, yes. is with refresh my recollection: Hereford, Worcester, yes. and and, and Gloucester, Gloucester. Yes, yes, indeed. Well done. Yes. Yes, and for me, being a, a student of the Thomas Tallis fantasy of Von uh, Williams, yes, which was yeah. premiered in your cathedral, sure was. We I've done it two or three times, and there's another piece. Um, he just knew the acoustic because Vaughan Williams, I'm proud to say, was born in Gloucestershire. Oh wow! As indeed was Holst. Do you play much Holst Planets? Presumably you can. No, of course we do. Time. And Elliot Carter, who I was first great close friends with, studied with Holst. Did he really? Yeah, what well, a history. It's, it's a strange history when you think of Elliot's music and the music of Holst, but he did study with Holst and he liked it. He also predominantly studied with uh, Nadia Boulanger, which is my background. Of course. Um, through Ellie Siegmeister, who was the intermediary between myself and yes. Madame, Mademoiselle. So, the name I know. Yes, wonderful. Yes. The so any, yes. Wonderful. Well, it's this very, very good training, which I went yes. through the species counterpoint and the really yes. fugue, etc. You know, it, yes. it has carried me all these years. Sure. But in any event, I, I'm very curious to know about the progress of a person, although you were a choir boy in a great cathedral in Worcester, and you come from musical parents, I know that, you then studied, I know, with uh, Howells. You studied mm. organ. Yes. You studied conducting. You studied piano. You're a yes. very fine pianist. You play piano concerti. And yes, well, I do. <laughs> well, and, but you have many recordings, especially when you were working uh, with the uh, CBSO, which I have also conducted at one point uh, fairly recently, wow. on the recording of my second symphony was done with the CBSO right after Andres left, before Mirga. Fantastic. So, but I've been, in, I've been in Bram, but you were there for, for a good period of time as a, a, when Simon was, was there, I understand. I was, yes, but I formed a youth choir, because it's always, as I've already demonstrated, my vision is the whole world to sing. Sounds dreadfully corny, but I mean, we, we a, set up choirs for the, for the orchestra, you know, Yes. Um, and the the older children um, were thrilled to take part in, you know, Mahler's Eighth Symphony and Mahler's Third Symphony and uh, uh, King Roger by Szymanowski and all these things. Oh, where this children's choir was just marvelous, marvelous years. And uh, it was fantastic for me to uh, live in the shadow of Simon Rattle for three or four years before he he, he moved to Berlin. Um, what a tremendous man he is. He really is. And you, you've you actually worked in Berlin as well, haven't you? Well, um, uh, yes and no. I mean, I've, I've played the organ in Berlin. I've accompanied the uh, Berlin Radio Choir a couple of times. Um, and last year, I was thrilled to take the Gloucester Cathedral Choristers to sing at the Philharmonie um, in uh, a, a, a youth concert, actually, uh, um, a concert with members of the orchestra, not the whole orchestra, um, and we sang uh, cantatas, two cantatas, uh, one by Nico Muli, 
uh, I'm sure you've come across, and one by Jonathan Dove. Lovely. So, lovely, lovely, great experience. Lovely. And my yeah, daughter lived there, so that was nice. I've only been there once. I was at a, a conference there, and uh, I did see Schulte conduct Mrs. Solemnus. Did you? So, oh, yes. <laughs> at the end of Wonderful. his life. So getting back to the progress, I mean, I know several people. I'm active in Chorus America here, and I have friends like Deborah Simpkin King, who is an organist and a wonderful choral director in a mm. – uh, uh, in what we call an Episcopal background here, which is, of yes. course, tied yes. to the Anglican Church. Yes, I understand. And I've spoken to her about the progress from being an organist to being a conductor in a cathedral and the skills necessary for both, not only dealing with the people who sing, but dealing with the pastors, dealing with the administration, yeah. dealing with the board of trustees, Yes. And so forth. So there's yes. a bit of p political activity. Certainly. But I, I'm, I'm curious about if you could talk about, and this is a very kind of intimate question, but it's a question of upbringing, which I think about all the time at my age, thinking about where am I going and where have I come from, mm. from my educational background and experience background. What did studying keyboard and being such a virtuoso organist do for you or has done for you and becoming the great conductor that you are. I'm curious, have you thought about that? Yes, I have. Um, uh, I think that for me, the conductors I feel most comfortable with are those who are also performers in the same way that I think that the composers that interest me are also performers. I think conductor, career, some career conductors don't always know about the executive difficulties that their performers are having if they haven't done it themselves um, and the, do you see what I mean yes um, and uh, my job here although I'm called director of music historically heads of music at cathedrals were called this curious English title organist and master of the choristers mm. so for the last 500 years those two sets of skills have been seen as good being together, you know? Um, and so I just grew up doing both. And it may mean that I'm not as good an organist as somebody who just plays the organ, and I'm not as good a singer as somebody who just sings. But uh, the church has historically required uh, both those skills to be developed together. Um, and so therefore, not only do I have to conduct, I have to play. So I'm always aware, at least I hope I'm always aware, of what my performers are facing, because half the time I have to play myself. I will tell you something. Yes, which, please. Uh, my most recent professional engagement, one for which I was humbly grateful, because there hasn't been a lot of professional work around in the last few months. Uh, I spent the last three days playing the harmonium um, oh. in reduced scoring uh, masterpieces, you know, um, after the First World War, Schoenberg and Irving Stein, people like that, re-scored big pieces for chamber ensemble. Otherwise, they weren't going to get performed. Um, That's the so Fonte Erde. That's the Fonte Erde. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. We did Schubert stuff. Um, we did Mahler's Fourth Symphony. Um, so, and the conductor was an American, um, mm -hmm. splendid man called Ken Woods, 
uh, I know also, Ken. He's a friend. Yeah, well, I've been playing, you see, and this is this is my thesis that I feel comfortable with conductors who themselves perform, you know, and that's what I try and do because I think they have a, I have another dimension to helping performers give of their best. That's that's my view anyway. No, it's it's an excellent view, and it's a view that I share. The composers that I have the closest relationship to have been uh, performers. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm a student of Sir Malcolm Arnold. I don't know if you knew that. Um, ah. ah, who was quite the... He was an interesting character. You know, he played Lond, uh, trumpet in the London Philharmonic. Yeah, and he, was, his music needs to be better known. He, he was yes, tremendous. Quite, yeah, he was quite the character. But, um, and, you know, Ben Britton was a fabulous conductor and a, a, mm. an amazing pianist who could keep up with Sviatoslav Richter. Right, you that, know, yeah, absolutely. Astounding yes. stuff. I'm not that kind of pianist. I'm an accompanist and have been for years. But uh, to, to to keep up with Sviatoslav Richter and beat him, I've seen some videos. It's just amazing. That Mozart duet indeed. Have you seen yes. that film? Yes, I have. Britain, Richter is focused and doing it while Britain was playing all the right notes, but was also aware and alert and smiling and, you know, just enjoying quite, it. Because the music quite. was so in him. Yes, it was. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yes. I've spent time in Aldeburgh, by the way, and on the beach there, and Lovely. the maltings and so forth. Oh, it's just incredible. And I went to the grave. I actually knew Peter Pierce. Uh, he, he came to yeah. Juilliard when I was there and spent a day with him, and he was magnificent. While Britain was still alive, just a few months later was not a good ending, but at a very oh. ridiculously young age. But um, I want to talk to you about Under the Notes, <laughs> a concept that I really love. And it's tied to spirituality which I know you're full of, which I love. I could see it when you conducted even so. Wow. And, and that magnificent music. When you approach a new piece, or maybe yeah. even a piece you you sang when you were a choir boy at the Worcester Cathedral, I know that you, you think about this because I can see it. Mm. Some, conduct, some performers, conductors, pianists, cellists, violinists, are what I call athletes. Mm. And they are not people who focus on realizing what is going on in the piece. Now, I reflexively go there because mm. I'm a composer. And, you know, I think of Beethoven, I think of the form, and I think of the the impulse and the integrity and everything else. Mm. And when I think of Wagner, I cannot conduct very good Wagner. I cannot. Because there's just something about him that I find so repulsive as a human being. <laughs> Although I know the music cold, I've coached it. And I love parts of Parsifal, and I hate parts of Parsifal. Mm, mm. So where I'm going is, if the music is something that I relate to, and that's most composers, I can seek a door into the psyche of the person mm. and perhaps get under the notes. So when you're looking at the music of Bird mm. during the, the Renaissance, or the music of Howells, or the music of Elgar, or... Any of these yeah. wonderful composers you do in the cathedral, or with the BBC, or with the the singer, the singers of the various semi-professional professional groups you conduct all the time. What are you approaching when you get that piece in front of you? You're in that studio. They're not around. What are you doing? How do you prepare? Well, um, it goes without saying that if I'm doing a new piece or a piece I even know, I read as much around the subject as I possibly can. Uh, and uh, since most of my work these days is to do with 
uh, choral music, um, the most important thing is that you have a perception of the meaning of the text. And I try and think, what does the composer mean by this? What does this line, why did, why did he set this line in that way? I think about this all the time. But I'm also aware of something, and I don't want to come across as being some sort of um, slightly mad Christian zealot. <laughs> Although I am a believer, yes. um, I believe that uh, the, the world does not exist for itself. Let me put it like that. That Quite there true. is a purpose in our being here. Uh, I think a lot of composers um, had uh, an instinct that meant that their work was not for themselves, that they were a kind of channel of energy um, for something greater than themselves. And that unquestionably Bach felt that, unquestionably Bird felt that, and uh, perhaps later composers have struggled with that notion. But the reason that I've, uh, I find working in the cathedral so fulfilling is that I think whether you believe in Christianity or not, it is surely a healthy thing that you see yourself as an artist as serving some greater purpose than your own ego. That's right. And uh, that is uh, how I approach the music. I, I'm not one for flinging myself around and demonstrating my emotions in public. Uh, what I try and do, and this sounds, I don't want this to sound pompous and old fashioned, is just um, help the performers serve the music to the best of their ability and my own ability. Um, and if you take the approach that music is a symbol of something greater than yourself, you can apply it to uh, any sort of music making, you know? some <clears throat> famous atheist composers, um, it works with them too, because real genius, like, I don't know, Stravinsky, Shostakovich, who are not, you know, obviously uh, Christians or spiritualists of any kind, they definitely had a perception that they were doing something which was bigger than themselves. There's no question about both of them. And no question about so many others. Um, when you first became the director of music at the uh, Gloucester Cathedral, I read an article in the local newspaper, which is online, and you wrote about. I did my research. I wrote. <laughs> you wrote about. You wrote about when the cathedral first went up in those years. There was a daily spirituality in people. Mm. tied to the observance and perhaps even the hearing of music. And that somehow in our modern world, the daily spirituality, I'm talking about all religions and creeds. It's, you yeah. Know, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of us have a right to say that ours is better than the other because only God, knows, only God knows the answer and there is no answer, I would hope. Absolutely. Yes. So I felt going into the Gloucester Cathedral and even song, not being Anglican, that I was completely welcome. I hope so. I felt that. And we have a tradition here in the National Cathedral, which is a uh, related 
uh, church to yours, I believe, mm. um, which is, I think, Episcopalian, where it's very open, especially now with all the turmoil. So that, to me, is the most magnificent thing I can find in the spirituality of religion, of which I'm quite a religious person, um, mm. coming out of my own tradition. But be that as it may, I, you know, I conduct the Verdi Requiem and the Brahms Requiem and and the Elizabethan composers when I can get to it. And it doesn't, you know, I don't have any differentiation in my soul because there is no absolute right to say one of us is right or wrong. We're not. Correct. No. When composers set words to music and you're right in the middle of it, do you, do you see opportunities gained or opportunities lost? What an interesting question. <laughs> um, I think the glib answer is that uh, the greatest composers grasp opportunities, the less good composers miss them. Um, and I have complete control, I'm happy to say, on the music that I program here. So I tend not to uh, program stuff that I don't think is very good. That's avoiding your question, really. Um, but uh, uh, there was a survey done by a PhD student of our music lists spread over 10 years. And I'm very pleased to say that um, the most, by far, the most uh, represented composer here was William Byrd, um, whose music I have a particular affinity to. And I think he gets such richness out of text and just never misses an opportunity. This is quite true. And, you know, I'm a composer of 100 songs and many choral works, as you know. Wow. <laughs> and, no, the whole idea of prosody, the setting of words to music, and just making sure that something happens mm. in, is a great art, and it's a delicate art that I've encountered, I've worried about my entire life. Mm. Uh, um, so I will say that this has been a great joy, Adrian Partington. Um, I look forward to having going to that local pub and yes, you must. I will. I will come back and toasting you and the glories of the Gloucester Cathedral and the BBC National Chorus of Wales and everything that you do. I know this is a very difficult time for very. you for you as a as a living musician who works all the time with people from all kinds of backgrounds. I do. I do which yes. is a very important, crucial, organic activity. It is not abstract in any way, shape, or form. And I deeply respect your work. So, thank you. Thank you, Adrian Partington, for being part of Interplay, Conversations and in Music. Great pleasure. This is your host, Michael Shapiro. <laughs>